morning. I didn't hear you. Good morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As Lord, he is 100% deity. He is God the Son. Uh, he is also 100% human, just like you and me, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and tabernacled among us, lived among us. He is the uniquely born one as the God-man. 100% God and 100% man and one person forever. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world. He is the Jewish Messiah. And those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home are Christians. And we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord. Because Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. He is not a thing. He is not a concept. And just as we do with anyone whom we love, we spend time getting to know the Lord. And we do that through the study of his word. You can't get to know the Lord without knowing his mind, and the Bible is his exact thinking. In fact, you can't get to know anybody without knowing his mind. And so that's why I think it's funny. I wanted to just share something with you that a friend of mine wrote in a banner that we were having on Facebook. And I told him that his view of the Bible was pretty inaccurate. Now, that comment was coming from a person who has studied the Bible for roughly 32 years. And he said, my view of the Bible is just fine. The Bible was written by men who are fallible, and it was written a long time ago, long before we had any knowledge of viruses and bacteria. It was written long before we understood that slavery didn't have to be a thing. It, like other religions, was an attempt by men to explain to themselves and their compatriots how to live in ever larger groups of people. And that is why all of the religions are so similar. I don't hold people's religious beliefs against them, even though I find it especially arrogant of one group of religious people to be so sure their religion is right and another's is wrong when almost 100% of people practice the religion of their mother and father. If God was great, he would clear up the mystery to save so many. Maybe he has not done so because he never existed in the first place. Please don't spend your entire life so certain of a myth that you fail to search for the truth. What did you say, Rick? What was the word you used after you heard that? That's exactly what I wrote. My response to that horseshit was wow. Now, and then the thing that popped into my head after that was it would be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. See, this, this guy's a wealthy guy. I love this guy. He's a great person. But that viewpoint and his intelligence level are like this. He is really bright, and that is the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life about the Bible, all gathered up into about two paragraphs. The dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so far off the mark that it's not even funny. It's horrible. So, you know, that's... That, you know, what this said, in essence, by the way, is that, holy cow, I wasted all my time yesterday, and I'm wasting my time right now. 
You know, that's what it told me, that I've wasted my whole life standing up here and teaching people about the Word of God. Because it's, I'm just teaching from a book of myths written by fallible guys that don't know what they're talking about. Well, the Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says no prophecy of Scripture was ever a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, carried along by God the, the Holy Spirit, spoke directly from the exact thinking of the God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow is a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart. It says that the Bible is the mind of Christ, the exact thinking of Christ. So, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. But these are intelligent people. The thing he said about uh, the Bible was written before we knew anything about viruses and bacteria, yeah, not exactly. Back in the time of, what, what is that? Do you know, can you isolate it? If it's the speaker, why don't you turn that speaker off and see if it's that. Might be time to buy a whole new set of equipment. And so, if you'd like to help us with this, please send a dollar ninety-five cents, and we'll send you a touch from God. Does that work? That, that wasn't it, huh? You want to try the other one over there? It's your fault. Whatever it is, it's your fault, June. So you know. So he's talking about the idea that the Bible was written before we knew anything about uh, viruses or bacteria. Well, actually, the, the Bible was written about 2,020 years ago, 2,025 years ago in the first century. But before that, there was this guy, Noah. Have you ever heard of him? the guy who built the boat that saved everybody from the flood. And at that time, uh, grape juice was grape juice. And then something happened during the flood where grape juice started to ferment. And so Noah drank some grape juice and was the first guy to get drunk. So fermentation, to my ignorant scientific mind, involves bacteria. So I think back in the times of Noah, way before the Bible was written, bacteria were known about. And so his comments couldn't be any more ignorant. So I just want you to to see stuff like that. Because one of the great things about Facebook is when people put this goofy stuff in writing. And then you get to see, you get to just look at it and examine it over and over and over again and see the thought process that's going on in somebody's head, and then it comes out of their mouth or into their fingers. And there are people walking around in this world right today who think that what they're doing out there is significant and that what we're doing in here is following a bunch of myths and fables and that this is a complete waste of their time. Yet, those are the same people who, when somebody gets on TV and says, hey, there's a new virus... And even though your body has been successfully fighting viruses for 65 years, this is one that you should really be scared of. Unbelievable. So anyway, we're here to continue our study of the myths. Today's lesson, (laughs) the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. 
of divorce. Well, one of the universe's first relationships between the Lord and his bodyguard, now known as Satan, ended in divorce. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 19 says this. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Ezekiel 28, 12, Son of man, sing a lamentation, a funeral song, over the king of Tyre. And that is Satan, the one behind the human king of Tyre, because all of this description that's coming up, you knew it couldn't be describing a guy. It says, thus says the Lord God, God the Son, you had the seal of perfection. You were created perfectly. You were full of wisdom. He was a genius, filled in advance with all the knowledge a creature could learn. And you were perfect in beauty. He was gorgeous. If Satan walked into this room right now, every one of you would completely turn away from me and fall down and worship him because he is gorgeous, brilliant, with a melodic voice that is seductive beyond measure. Ezekiel 28:13 You were in Eden the garden of God every precious stone was your adornment the ruby the topaz and the diamond the beryl the onyx and the jasper the lapis lazuli the turquoise and the emerald and the gold the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you and on the day you were created they were prepared Ezekiel 28:14 You were known as the anointed cherub who Satan was the original secret service. He was a four-winged officer angel, and he was the Lord's bodyguard. And he prevented evil from approaching the throne. And I, the Lord God, placed you there in the highest position a creature could hold. You were on the holy mountain of God, that is, in the first heaven, the abode of God. You walked amid the, amid the stones of fire, the throne room of heaven, with direct access to God's presence. Ezekiel 28:15. And by the way, he still has direct access to God's presence today. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 15. You were blameless in your ways, that is you were sinless from the day you were created until unrighteousness, the sin of arrogant pride was found in you. Ezekiel 28:16. Using the trafficking of slander that is, going about from one to another with dishonest messages. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I, the Lord, have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have removed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. In other words, he was expelled from God's government team. Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, Your heart was lifted up in arrogant pride because of your beauty, because you were gorgeous. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, and I cast you to earth. I put you before kings that they may see you, so that you will be a spectacle both to God and to men. Ezekiel twenty-eight eighteen. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your dishonest slander, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. The fire has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Ezekiel twenty-eight nineteen. All who know you among the people are shocked by you. You have become consumed, a horrible end, and you will cease to be forever. Satan turned on the Lord 
and convinced all of the angels to follow in his rebellion. What is the Lord's attitude toward divorce? He allows it, but he is not a fan of it. And in today's lesson, we'll continue our study of 1 Corinthians as Paul gives the believers at Corinth the divine perspective on divorce. Well, let's hear some music. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 to seven say this. This is the message that we have heard directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and announced to you, believers in Christ, that God the Father is light, and in the Father there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God the Father, that is, that we're possessors of the resurrection life as believers in Christ, and yet walk in the darkness, which is the lifestyle of the unbeliever, we lie and do not practice the truth. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as God the Father himself is in the light, we, God and us, have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Well, the group surfaces, says in song, show me where the light is.
Murphy with Keep Me Where the Light Is doing a little hip-hop today. Was that you, June? I don't know. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for the tribulation we experience in human relationships, which you allow as our spiritual gymnasium. And just as it happens in real gymnasiums, thank you for helping us to build spiritual muscle through the trials you provide for our lives. Thank you for the people who hurt us, because it builds spiritual toughness in us. Thank you for always providing a way of escape from our trials, a door with a road beneath it that leads us back to you and to your word. Be our navigator, Father. Have God the Holy Spirit direct us on the narrow path. Help us to thrive during the tough times with the tough-mindedness you instill in us. Teach us not to quit. Direct us down the path of righteousness so that we can experience the abundance you planned for us in eternity past. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. You know what? If you get the crown before the cross, that's not good. See, that's the problem in my mind with today's generation of people. They want the crown, but they don't want the cross. That's not how God works. God went to the cross before he got the crown. And as a matter of fact, what Satan was trying to do in Matthew 4 is to coerce him to take the crown before the cross. He said, hey, you hungry, man. You've been starving for like 40 days. Why don't you just, you're, you're omnipotent, right? You have all the power. Why don't you just turn these stones to bread and eat something, man? Get a meal. Come on, man. In and out clothes today. It's a non-essential business. So go ahead. Turn these stones into bread. And the Lord said, but the, the Bible says, it says, it is written, man shall not live on physical food alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't want the crown before I've gone to the cross. And Satan's whole program, not only with Jesus Christ, but with us, is to, to try to convince us that we're going to get the crown without the cross. I ain't got no time for that. You ain't going to get no crown without no cross, amen? So just give up that whole idea. And what does that mean? You know, that it means that we don't want to work. We don't want to put in the effort. We want the pigeon to fly over our head and give us something. That's not how it works. Denny, I think it might be my microphone, so let's tee up a new microphone. Because that's the thing that seems to be. And I, I can't isolate where it's coming from, but it seems to be coming from the mic. So let's get the other live, or I'll do a handheld, whatever I got to do, so this doesn't drive me crazy. All right, so today's Bible lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul begins addressing problems brought up to him in the form of questions by Chloe and other people concerning the believers in Christ in the church at first century Corinth. We're going to do this right now? Sure. Okay, let's go. Yeah.
Check, check, check. Check, check, check. That's a very expensive microphone to be going bad this soon, you know what I'm saying? Just when you thought it was safe to go outside. Are you hearing me? Can you hear me? No, it's the same show. Hello. Can you hear me? All right, good. All right, so let's get back to it. That might have been the problem. All right, so today's Bible lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. So, oh boy, that took away all the suspense from you, didn't it? You know, oh, wow, oh, I'm so glad to know that. Now, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul begins addressing problems brought up to him in the form of questions by Chloe and other people concerning the believers in Christ in the church at first century Corinth. Corinth is the Las Vegas of the day. In other words, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's where people went to hang out and do every raunchy thing that you could possibly do. And God planted a beautiful church right in the middle of it with believers in Christ. But they were coming out of the world and into this church. And what they did is they came in with all their worldly views and tried to taint the church with their worldly views. So Paul is interested in correcting erroneous thinking that is being housed in the minds of these new believers. So here's an overview of the remaining topics in chapter 7. First, and that this is what we're going to study today. Chapter 7, verses 10 to 16, instructions about di divorce. First, for married Christians, which is probably one of the shortest things you'll ever hear. And then for Christians married to unbelievers. And those are the two circumstances that Christians find their, themselves in. They're either married to another Christian or they're married to unbelievers. And God has a view about divorce in those two situations. Chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, a guiding principle, remain as you are. When things are going crazy in your life and you're thinking about making a change, don't. Sit still. Amen? Amen? Yeah, you know why you didn't say amen? Because that's not what you do. We got to change it up. We got to change it up. As soon as you get in a pickle, what do you want to do? You want to change it up. And then you go right off the cliff and you're scratching your head like, why did that happen? Yeah. Why did that happen indeed? And then 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40, the, adv the advisability of marriage. <laughs> Why isn't this first? Why isn't he talking about this first so we can get to all the people who haven't gotten married yet and warn them? Go back! Go back! <laughs> and so this is the advisability of marriage for the engaged and for widows. All right, so that's the rest of chapter 7. So let's look at the verses we've studied so far, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, and then we'll move into the section that we're going to do today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, isn't it the highest, most virtual good for a married man not to touch a married woman? You remember that in the church in Corinth, there were these ascetics who believed that celibacy in marriage was a good idea, that sexless marriages were a good idea. And many couples today think the same thing, that once a year in front of the Christmas tree is just a really good idea. I don't happen to agree with that assessment, but you don't have to pay attention to me because I am not God. But God doesn't agree with that assessment either, amen? I love that. So 
Remember that in verse 7, 1, now concerning is your cue that God is address, uh, that Paul is addressing things that the congregation belo- brought to him. So this is the first thing, the ascetic celibates, and asceticism is self-denial, people who think they're more spiritual because they're fasting. You are not more spiritual because you are fasting. You are more hungry because you are fasting, Amen. And I, I don't think being hungry for a long period of time is a good idea because it eventually becomes hangry, which is also a sin. Amen? All right. Get a Snickers bar. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Because of the temptations of sexual immoralities like fornication, which is premarital sex, and purchasing sex for hire with strangers, which is engaging in prostitution, each man is to have sex with his own wife, And each woman is to have sex with her own husband. Her own, his own being the functional part, right? Not somebody else's, amen? And here's the funny thing, you know, as soon as we start talking about sex, everybody gets that little adult giggle. (laughs) Isn't it funny that we're talking about sex? (laughs) It's so embarrassing. Yeah, God created sex, and he created it for recreation, fun, and, oh, by the way, procreation, And the smarter of those two things he did was the recreation part, amen? Because the procreation part, what do you get out of that? Video game people, amen? Like, what was God thinking on that? 1 Corinthians, don't be mad. Don't hate. Don't hate. If I tell you the truth, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Amen? All right, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband must fulfill his sexual obligation to his wife by making himself available to her for sexual intercourse anytime she wants it. And likewise, also, the wife must fulfill her sexual obligation to her husband by making herself available to him for sexual intercourse anytime he wants it. Amen? Except at the dinner table. That's kind of gross. First Corinthians, <laughs> or in restaurants, not in public. Okay, come on, don't be ridiculous. First Corinthians 7, 4. Now, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband has authority over her body. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife has authority over his body. What does that mean? That means that marriage is an authority relationship. The husband is the initiator, the wife is the responder. The husband's the president, the wife's the vice president. But in sexual matters, they are equal. The authority relationship does not apply. So the husband doesn't come home and say, assume the position. You don't get to do that. It's mutual. It's an agreement. And they both have equal say. Beautiful. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. So stop depriving one another. There's God's command in the matter of sexual intercourse and marriage. Stop depriving one another. Why? Except by mutual agreement for a time so that you may withdraw to devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, there are other things that you have to do in life other than just having sex. And then have sexual intercourse again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A lack of self-control means because you are aflame with passion. And when that passion gets going, it needs to be satisfied. And within marriage, that's what the sexual relationship does. Amen? All right. 1 Corinthians 7, 6. Now I, Paul, 
say the following things, not as a command, but by agreement. This is something you can choose. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, single and celibate. However, each Christian has his very own grace gift from God. One has a gift in this manner, and one has a gift in another matter. So everybody can't be single and celibate, in other words. Some people need to marry. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, But I, Paul, say to the unmarried and to widows, and he's speaking specifically of young widows here, women whose husbands have died, that it's good for them to remain single and celibate, if they can, he's saying, even as I am single and celibate. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they are absolutely not able at exercising self-control, meaning if they burn a flame with passion, the imperative mood of command says, let them marry. That's what God's telling you. If you are the, the person who is aflame with passion all the time, get married, not just for the sexual relationship, but through understanding yourself. And not without discernment before you do it, not with the next person that comes along, but on that track. Why? Because it's better to marry than to burn. It's better to be married and have a forum for the expression of your sexual passion than it is to burn a flame with sexual passion. Amen? All right, so what is God telling us? He's cool. Stop depriving each other in the sexual realm. And if you can't be single and celibate, then you have the option of being married. And, and that's especially a smart thing to consider if you're burning with passion. Nine verses fastball down the middle don't just stand there with a the bat on your shoulders where was this when i was 20 years old amen it wasn't around because i was in roman catholicism crossing myself every three minutes bending up and down saying the same stupid prayers over and over and over and over and over again that meant absolutely nothing they weren't teaching me one thing it was just like being in school I, all day yesterday i was in a financial workshop and the thing that kept coming up, kept, when did you ever learn about finances and how to handle your finances? When did you ever learn how to handle your finances? When did anybody ever give you financial literacy? Never. Never. Not in school. Nobody said, okay, when you get out of school, you will have income, you will have expenses, you will have debt. There is such a thing as bad debt. Having a destination wedding and spending $100,000 for it instead of taking that $100,000 and buying a house is just plain stupid. Stupid. Who's telling you that? Oh, no, but see, you don't understand, Pastor Rory. See, when I was a little girl, I heard one of Aesop's fables about this girl who was cleaning up... Uh, her, her wicked stepmother's house and she went to a party and she met the prince and she ran away and the slipper fell off and then he came and married her. And they had a beautiful wedding and there were little birds flying around holding her dress. And I want that too. Come on, man. It was a fable. Aesop's fables, it didn't happen. And now you're going to spend $100,000 for that? Seriously? Seriously? Oh, my God. Man, we are such suckers, aren't we? 
We are such suckers. But remind me to tell you sometime how I had a destination wedding and didn't pay a penny for it. That's when you really got game. Amen? <laughs> didn't pay a dime. Kauai, the island of Kauai, the St. Regis Princeville Resort, didn't pay a dime. I was total gangster. <laughs> and I'm not telling you during the prayer circle, so don't be talking to me during the prayer circle. That's for prayer. Now today's passage, instructions about divorce for married Christians and for Christians married to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. Here's what it says. But to the married, I, Paul, give instructions, and not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. 1 Corinthians seven eleven. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. 1 Corinthians seven twelve. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, but me, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Say again? Oh, I was reading the same slide again, wasn't I? So? I didn't think you had me. So I had to say it again. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 1 Corinthians 7.16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So when we return from our five-minute break, we'll take your offering, and then we'll study this section verse by verse to learn, the God, learn God's attitude toward divorce. Five-minute break. Why you ever chose me? It's always been a mystery All my life I've been told I belong At the end of the line With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Save my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to 
me saying who do you think you are I say I'm, I'm just a nobody Point at me again. I like when you do that. <laughs> Today's Bible lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. Well, sometimes when we give from a benevolent intent, we get suckered. People take advantage of our generosity. And we must never let the fact that our gift has been misused affect us so that we are wary of giving in the future. And this is the attitude among many Christians toward giving, who once burned 
are now twice shy, as the saying goes. It's always good to remind ourselves of God's attitude about giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8 says this, Now this I, Paul, say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one of us must give just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a giver who is not reluctant to give. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God the Father is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance to give for every good deed. So when you give, let it be a one-way experience between you and God. And don't worry at all about how your gift is used. The God of all sufficiency who knows your heart will bless you abundantly. And know this, Barah Ministries will use your gifts well. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. My mic sounds great, by the way. <laughs> Just, saying. Just saying. I'm Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. And Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church where real people come to listen to a real pastor, teach the real truth from the Word of God. And each week I kind of focus on a part of the lesson, and it it's generally kind of zooms into one word about a lesson, and I kind of focus on that for the offering of the next week. And last week, Pastor mentioned that Satan and his plan tries to bring religion or bring Christianity to religion tries to dirty up religion it tries to make it sick dirty and wrong and I think that happens a lot in life and I think religion tries to bring the Christian into into the sick dirty and wrong into the into the 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 bad path and into the darkness and so this week when I was looking up verses I just looked up dirty which I've never actually looked up in my Bible app (laughs) biblehub.com I looked it up I looked up dirty and a verse came up and it, it needs some context, but it suits what we're studying right now really well. It kind of it captures everything we've been talking about with Paul, how he's trying to tell the believers not to go down that path and stay away from those things and how they're making you dirty. You're, you're being pulled into the religious side of life, and you're being pulled into the things that aren't Christian. You're being pulled away from the light. And it's actually Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17 through 22. Peter's talking about false teachers, which is very similar to what Paul is talking about, you know, all these bad things that we shouldn't be doing, whether it's the sexual lust or the deviancy, but false teachers are the same thing. They're going to pull you away from the truth. Um, So 2 Peter 2, verse 17 says, These false teachers are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the the blackest darkness, the lake of fire, has been reserved. You think of, you feel the mist, like, oh, it feels good, but it's just a storm. It's false hope. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18. For speaking out arrogant, arrogant words of vanity, false teachers entice by appealing to fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They promise their converts freedom, while false teachers themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if 
after they have escaped the defilements of the world by knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in the world and are overcome. The last state has become worse than the first state. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them, handed on to them. And here's the kicker verse, what I found. It has happened to them according to the, old, the true proverb from the Old Testament. A dog returns to his vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So that's the verse I zeroed in on and found. A dog returns to his vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. That's the dirtiness that we put on ourselves, that we go back to. After having stepped in the light and becoming saved and having salvation, we let go of that. And it's so simple because in life, you know, I have a career, I have work, I have friends, I have a marriage, I have kids, and all these things are pulling me in a million different directions. And then you add on top of that what Paul's talking about, sexual lust and deviancy and all these other things that the world is trying to intermesh into those layers of your life. And how could we survive without having faith in Christ, without having knowledge of truth? And I think it's, it, this, these verses made it so much more clear to me that we have to have truth, and ha- truth has to be so simple. So if you do find something that's, you know, a, that's confusing about the world, or you, f- you have some type of friend that's telling you what to do, like your friend talking to you that the Bible is just men, you know it's wrong. You know it's completely wrong. Whatever the world tells you, you know it's wrong. Video games are good. All right, we know that's wrong. Golf is good. We know that's wrong. <laughs> but it doesn't say that. So, I mean, the, the point of this is just, I think if you, if you guys all take the chance to read back through that on your own time, it really, it's, it's, a, it's such a, a poignant thing to think about because we're surrounded by false teachers. We're surrounded by all these things that don't help us, that don't help us down the right track. And it's really easy to bite onto those things and th- give that false sense of hope where, oh, well, maybe, you know, as Pastor's talking about with marriage, you know, maybe, oh, maybe my, I do need to go somewhere else for my loving. I need to go somewhere else. And it valid, the world validates that for you. You, you find some type of person that's going to tell you everything you need to hear and you know it's wrong because it's not coming from Christ. It's not coming from truth. And it's, I think it's, uh, I'm kind of losing myself in all these verses because it's, it's really a lot to swallow when you think about it. Just the fact that if we are saved and we go back to being, to being uh, you know, sinning all the time and thinking about bad things, then we're really worse than we were from the beginning. And let's, let's think about the fact that everybody out there is dealing with these problems and we're here to help them. So that's what the offering is, is for you to help them get to the point where we know these things and we know the truth that we're not going to return to the vomit. We're not going to return to the mire. We're going to go to the light. And we need to show everybody else the light. And that's what happens when you give it the offering. And so thank you very much. And hit it, Zach.
Today's Bible lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a fan of divorce. Welcome back. Well, when I saw that Deacon Denny was going to tackle that, those five verses, I got this sick feeling in my stomach. I thought, oh God, where's he going with this? And so I went and read the whole uh, Second Peter chapter 2, I believe it was. Is that right? And when you look at those verses in context, context, it becomes a lot clearer what's being said. But here, here's how I would sum it up. That as believers in Christ, once we become believers in Christ, we are, it, it is credited to our account, absolute righteousness. That's our admission ticket to heaven. And it's as if God coats us with Teflon. Okay, so now... Sin comes at us. The, the temptation to sin comes at us. And it really hits us and falls off because we're righteous. Unbelievers, on the other hand, are Velcro. It hits them and it sticks. And so what believers in Christ do is they say, well, I don't think the, the sin ought to just slip off like that. And so they go out to Home Depot and they buy some Velcro. And they make a little jacket of it and they put the Velcro on. And now when sin hits us, it sticks to us, right? Now all we have to do is take the jacket off. Don't be silly, just take the jacket off. All your sins are paid for. But we say, well, no, I really like those sins from the world. And so that's how we as Christians mix the world into our lives. We just need to keep the, the Velcro off and just let God's righteousness do what it does, which is let sin hit us. We commit sins, but it just slips off. Because we're forgiven. Forgiven. Forgiven in the past with the result that we stand forgiven forever. We don't have to ask God for forgiveness. Because you would never dream of asking God for something that you already have. You're already forgiven. So don't use God's grace as a, an inducement to sin. Don't use it as an opportunity for the Velcro. The flesh. Move on and grow. And that's why we're here. We're here not to be beaten up by the truth. We're here to learn how the truth sets us free. You know, the poor kids here, we're, we're banging on video games. I just need you to know something about me. I don't play video games. You know why? Do you know why? Because I am amazing at it. You ever heard of Pac-Man? I could, I, could, I could get 500,000 points on Pac-Man with my eyes closed. I was so good. But you know how many hours it takes to get that good? How many books you got to read? How many codes you got to do? How, many, how you got to avoid the whoop, whoop, whoop? You know, I was, I was amazing at it. So I, don't, I stay as far away from video games as I can because I, I am an obsessive person. And I would totally engulf myself in that. And then I'd come in here every week and say, all right. Now we're going to talk about God. Oof, oof, oof. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Yeah, it's amazing. He is amazing. Love God. Do you love God? Do we all agree that we love God? Okay, let us pray and get the hell out of here. But wait, we're going to take the offering first. And you sing a couple songs. But all the time I'm thinking, I got to get back to my video games, right? Because I got it on Paul. So that's why I don't play video games. So please don't get it wrong. I'm not a fuddy-duddy when I talk about video games, but there's more to life than video games. Amen? Amen. 
There's alcohol too. All right. So, welcome back. <laughs> Let's take a look at the passage under study verse by verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Here's what it says. But to married to the married Christian, I give orders, and not I, Paul, but the Lord gives the orders that the Christian wife should not initiate divorce from her husband. Amen? In the hood, we would say, stay where y'all at. Just stay where y'all at. Amen? Now, in God's eyes, marriage is permanent. Christians are commanded by God not to divorce their Christian spouses because God does not want people to divorce. And here's what we would also say in the hood. Ain't nothing out there. Go check. There's nothing out there. People who are married are always fantasizing about what it would be like and how different it would be. It's not going to be different. You know why? Because you're going to show up. It's going to be exactly the same, only worse. It's not going to be better. See, that's the, the, the deception of better. People are always talking, I just need to get a little better. Okay, look. If you start shitty and you get a little better, you're shittier. Because that's the deception of better. Better assumes that you're pretty good already. We're not. We need to get different. We need to take out the current mindset and throw it out. It's not working. And install a new one. And this is the new mindset. 66 books, 27 of which we're responsible for. Amen? Think like God thinks about stuff. Stop depriving one another. What a concept. How many of my friends are complaining about sexless marriages and God has the prescription right here, stop depriving one another? Oh, well, I just have a lot of resentment built up. So? So? That's a five-day program. Have sex five times and resentment melts. Amen? Because God's powerful. Love melts resentment. Unconditional love. Okay, I expect nothing of you. Anything I get there for is a bonus. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, you're a work in progress, as am I, and I'm not going to judge you in the middle of your race. Because even in a marathon, where is the person who eventually wins the marathon at the midpoint in the race? They're in the middle of the pack. They're not out front. Because that's the way life is. It takes a while for us to learn stuff. Men are clueless until they're 40 years old. Clueless. And women know it, because women get, get cool about 20 years old. And now they're stuck for 20 years with these goofballs who haven't figured it out yet, who haven't slain their demons. That's the way it goes. So God wants us to hang in there through all that. He wants people to live together in harmony, unity, and choosing to do what God wants us to do is our choice. And guess what? Whoever promised you that marriage was a bowl of cherries? It's not. What makes marriage amazing is when you have been with somebody for 40 years or 58, and you look at them and say, man, all the stuff that we went through. All the stuff that we went through. All that, that 
Oh, I remember that 16th year, man. I was like two minutes from shanking her. <laughs> but I didn't because it was illegal. I just decided to hang in there. And then it got good the next year. And then it went deeper into the tank. That's life. That is life. That's what's so amazing about life. The texture that you gain from having the crap kicked out of you over and over and over again. And what a blessing to have that done by the same person. Amen? So, 1 Corinthians 7.11. But if the Christian wife does initiate divorce, she must remain unmarried or she has the choice to be reconciled to her husband. What is God teaching us there? We fell and he invited us back. Reconciliation. That's what reconciliation is. So if the Christian wife does initiate divorce, she must remain unmarried or she has the choice to be reconciled to her husband. And the Christian husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, he shall not send her away. And that's the Greek idiom. When you divorce somebody, you send them away. You remember what Joseph planned to do with Mary? when he found out that she was a pregnant virgin, they were engaged, which meant in the ancient world they were married and they were still living at their parents' house because you did that for a year after you got engaged. But you were really married and you didn't have sex for a year. And she got pregnant. And a woman who was married and got pregnant was stoned to death. So assuming the worst, what Joseph was going to do is divorce her secretly so she wouldn't be stoned to death. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says this, And Joseph, Mary's husband, being a righteous man, a believer in Christ, and not wanting to disgrace Mary, which means not wanting to have her killed, not wanting her to be the subject of ridicule in the Jewish community because she was pregnant and a virgin, planned to send her away, planned to divorce her secretly. You remember that. But angels intervened in a dream and Joseph hung in there. So to the married Christian, God's advice as always is pretty succinct. Two verses boiling down to two words. Don't divorce. Don't divorce. Because marriage illustrates our union with Christ. At the moment of believing in Christ, you are placed into union with Christ. A union you cannot get out of. You cannot lose your salvation once you have it because God did it, you didn't do it, and there's nothing you can do to ruin it. And anybody who tells you that that's not true is out of their mind. Marriage illustrates the creator-creature bond. It, mer it illustrates God and his union with his holy nation Israel. It illustrates God and his union with his chosen race, the Jews. Marriage illustrates the union between Christ and his church-age believers. He is the groom, we are the bride. Amen? All right, so that's what marriage is teaching us. It's teaching us about unity. Unity between human beings. Unity between imperfect people who are always looking for the easy way out, who are always looking to run, who are always looking to not put in the effort that it takes. And what is the effort it takes? Getting your butt kicked. That's the effort it takes. It takes toughness. Marriage is not for the faint of heart. It takes toughness to be married. Amen? Is y'all feeling me? I'm feeling me, dog. 
Is y'all feeling me? Thank you. <laughs> you see what happens when you get married? You have kids, right? And then there it is. That was my kid. <laughs> Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6 say this. And Jesus answered the Pharisees and said, Have you not read that God the Son, the Lord, who created Adam and Esha, which was Eve's name before the fall, who created Adam and Esha from the beginning, made them male and female? Matthew 19, 5, And said, For this reason, marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. To cleave means to have sexual intercourse with, because sexual intercourse is the thing that separates the marriage relationship from all other relationships in the world. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Divorce, on the other hand, illustrates a bond broken by Satan. He cheated on God. The friends became enemies, and it was the enemy who declared the separation, because God is everybody's friend, and those who don't want a relationship with God, those who reject him make God an enemy. The Lord is not a fan of divorce, but he offered a reconciliation for all creatures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 say this. Oh, I missed a verse from Matthew. Why didn't you tell me, Zach? Matthew, <laughs> it's your fault. Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, So they are no longer two, but the two have become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No man put asunder. All right, now back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things, including believers in Christ as a new creation, are from God the Father, who reconciled us to himself, through the work of Christ on the cross and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And what is rec reconciliation? Namely, that God the Father was through the Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he do that? Because of what Christ did at the cross, God the Father was not counting our trespasses against us because sins are imputed to Christ, credited to his account and judged, and paid for by his shed blood. And God the Father has committed to us believers in Christ the ministry of reconciliation. So aren't we silly as Christians when we look up to God and we say, God, I'm sorry. God's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knew every sin you'd commit a billion years ago. Don't look up to God and say you're sorry about anything. He forgave you already. Stop bringing it up again. Just move on. You made a mistake, learn from it, move on. Stop bringing it up. Now, what are Christians who marry unbelievers to do? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Well, first of all, kill the problem before it happens. Do not be bound together. Do not be married with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? A believer in Christ is righteous an unbeliever is unrighteous, lawless, ungodly. What fellowship has light with darkness? When the light is on, you can't see the darkness. The darkness drowns out the light. They have nothing in common. 2 Corinthians 6.15 Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is one of the 
fallen angels. He's one of the fallen officer angels of Satan. And what his name means is lawless, worthless person. <laughs> God is so good. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The answer, nothing. So in the first place, don't marry an unbeliever. That's the first remedy for a Christian. Prevent the heart attack. Don't close the barn door after the horse has escaped. Most people stop smoking when? Right after the heart attack. Stop now. All right. The command discourages marriage to unbelievers. But after a Christian marries an unbeliever, the believers in Corinth wanted to know, can I just leave them? Yeah, wouldn't they want to know that? Because they always want an out. As soon as it gets tough, can I just leave the unbeliever? In fact, some wanted to know, is divorcing an unbeliever the duty of a Christian? Is that something I just must do? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 says this, But to the rest, and that's Christians married to unbelievers, put that verse up, do. But to the rest, Christians married to unbelievers, I, Paul, say, it's not the Lord saying it, I, Paul, am saying it, that if any Christian brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him in a committed marriage, he must not divorce her. The Lord says through Paul's authoritative discernment, because he is filled with the Spirit, that a Christian is not to divorce an unbeliever to the extent that it's in the Christian's control. By the way, if you're not married, work out your God differences before you marry because it will definitely be a factor that can undermine the success of your marriage. It is not a small matter. I am counseling a couple that I will be marrying in October, and this is one of the subjects we're bringing up. Are you a Christian? She was not, he is. Well, I've been evangelizing to her, and now she says she is a Christian, and I'm not going to believe her. I'm going to keep on evangelizing to her, and then... I'm going to ask them a question. How are you going to raise the kids? And that'll be something that'll start to flush out what the truth is. Because if you don't work that out before marriage, once you get in it, marriage is already a fight. And that's just one thing that is volatile and has a lot of fuel for the fire. And it is, it's just rough to do that after you get married. Paul is using the instruction of the Lord and his knowledge of the Lord and is applying this knowledge with confidence to situations that the Bible does not explicitly define. And I always love the legalists. Well, nowhere in my Bible does it say... Well, nowhere in my Bible does it say... No, there's some things your Bible doesn't say. There's some things that you have to, after having learned for about 15 years, you have to actually use your own discernment to decide. See? So some things God makes explicit, some implicit. In John chapter 20, verse 30, the Bible says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are a lot of things that apply to you as a Christian that are not written in this book. For some human problems, we have to make an application of biblical principles. God is not always explicit. Sometimes he is implicit, leaving decisions to our will. Isn't that great? It's almost like God believes in freedom. Amen? 
he does believe in freedom because he's not a tyrant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. And a Christian woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her in a committed marriage, she must not send her husband away in divorce. In other words, two words, don't divorce. The Lord is not a fan of divorce. Then the question arose, does being married to an unbeliever defile me? To be defiled meant being in the right place at the wrong time was someone was dumping their chamber pot, the in-home urinal and feces container. You were walking under the, the balcony just when they turned it over the top and you got defiled. So the believers are wondering, does being married to an unbeliever defile me? Well, why were they wondering that? Because in Corinth, there, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of idolatry where people were worshiping statues and, and, and the, the panoply of God, Zeus and Mars and all those gods. And so they were wondering, does this put me in a position to be defiled? And their concern was especially in the sexual relationship with a pagan who would have authority over their body. And they were wondering if that would pollute their body. Amen? But Paul says, no, the Christian is not defiled. Why? 1 Corinthians 7, 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through the spiritual power of his Christian wife. God makes the union holy. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the spiritual power of the believing husband. Because if that was not true, if you were defiled, then your children would be defiled. But through sanctification, now they are holy. God thinks of everything. And see, there was a worry that a marriage to an idolater unbeliever is defiled because an unbeliever who marries a Christian is made one body with the Christian, one flesh. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16? Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute, the one who has sex with a prostitute, is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, the two become fused. When you have illicit sex you become fused to the other person and that's what they were worried about i'm a believer in righteousness and in the light and now i have fused myself with an unbeliever who's unholy unrighteous and in the dark does that defile me no it doesn't god worked that out so paul says no issue first corinthians chapter 7 verse 15 Yet if the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce, let him leave. That's a command. If the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce, let him leave. The Christian brother or sister is not enslaved, is not required to stay in the marriage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. God wants harmony, not discord and division. And if there's no harmony with the unbeliever because the unbeliever doesn't want to be married anymore, let him go and you have the right of remarriage. That's what God is saying. Paul wants believing spouses to stay married, though, for good reason. So, see, God prefers peaceful reconciliation, not separation. The mixed marriage union between Christian and unbeliever is dependent on the will of the unbeliever spouse to stay. It is not within the believer's control. But if an unbeliever leaves a Christian, the Christian has the right to remarry. And in the first century, just as is true now, a marriage was over when one spouse wants out. 
One spouse says, I'm leaving, the marriage is over. The rest is just splitting up the stuff. But God says, don't divorce, don't do it. Why? Ain't nothing out there. You're just going to do it again, and who's going to show up? You. That was one of the great lessons of my, career, my early career. First job, I thought, oh, my boss is blah, blah, blah. Second job, oh, my boss is blah, blah, blah. Third job, all my bosses, blah, blah, blah. And one of my friends said, did you notice something about all three jobs? I said, what? You showed up. Maybe it's you. Oh. <laughs> it was. <laughs> How about a little authority orientation that you were raised with, buddy? So Paul wants believing spouses to stay married, and for good reason, especially when they're married to unbelievers, for good reason. Why? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16. For how can you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And I have a, a lot of examples of this, but one comes to mind. There was a lady, and we used to have uh, uh, Bible lessons in her house. And when we would have Bible lessons in our house, her husband would go in the basement. And so I, being the kind of person I am who likes irritating people, I'd always go down to the basement and say, what's up, dog? Why are you down in the basement? Why aren't you up there with us? Oh, I don't want to be up there with all that God crap. What do you mean God crap? There's a God. Don't you know that? Yeah, well, I just think, you know, I might as well read this again, right? Oh, the Bible's just a bunch of guys and... You know, maybe there isn't a God and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, you can't be in, as intelligent as you are and believe any of that stuff, really, honestly. Come on upstairs and learn something about God. No, I'm not. <laughs> right? And so, on his deathbed, you know, he's, he's hearing all this Bible stuff over and over and over and over again. He's hearing all these people. Every time I go over to this house, I'm talking to him about the Lord. And he's pretending like he's not listening. But on his deathbed, just before they put that morphine drip in, he believed in Christ. See? That's what this verse is saying. You don't ever know. His believing wife saved him. By doing what? By irritating him. By bringing all those Bible thumpers in, especially the black guy. Thump, thump, thump. And the thumper always went down and thumped. Hey, what's going on, man? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ yet so you could be saved and not go to Lake of Fire? Hot down there. You got any stock in asbestos? <laughs> That's funny. It is. But it ain't funny when you're down there. Just remember I said that, you five words from being saved. Father, I believe in Christ. That's the moment of eternal life for you. Or like the thief on the cross, nine words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or the other guy who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't forget. On his deathbed, just before they gave him the morphine. If they, after they give you the morphine, I don't know if you ever heard had morphine or not, but morphine is good. You ain't thinking about nothing. Amen? It is so good. You're not thinking about God or anybody else. You're just thinking about how good that morphine feels. 
Well, hopefully this, this section lets you know that God prefers unity. And so you should let that be your guide in all human, in all human relationships, but especially in the marriage relationship, which was one of the toughest relationships of all. Well, the closing moments of our lesson today are for anyone who's listening who does not have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want you to know that no matter what, God wants you. And I was thinking this week, what if you had committed the 10 worst sins in history? And I don't know what the 10 worst sins are, but let's just pretend a list. Maybe it's, maybe it's all the sins in 1 Corinthians 6-9. Let's say that you had engaged in homosexuality, you had murdered someone, you had engaged in pederasty, you had engaged in stealing, in strife, in adultery, in fornication. Take the 10. And you're sitting in a church. What are you thinking that God thinks of you? You're thinking that God thinks of you what you think of you, which is that you're worthless. But he's not. God wants you, and the worse you are, the better. As a matter of fact, the guy he picked to write two-thirds of the New Testament, which is the the instruction set for the church-age believer is the biggest murderer of all time. He single-handedly wanted to wipe out the Christian church, and he went every day to churches killing men, women, and children who were Christian, killing parents in front of their children, and sponsoring the killing. And it wasn't good enough for him to just kill people in his hometown, so he was headed off to the equivalent of Europe And he had papers to go there and do the same thing when he got knocked off his high horse and enjoined by God to write most of the New Testament. God always used the worst people for the purpose of illustrating what his attitude is toward the worst people. What's his attitude toward the worst people? Unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace. God wants you. No matter how bad you think you are, it's not bad enough. So the closing moments of our study are for you. As human parents, often we are emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental. We tell our children exactly what we want them to do, expecting that they will do it. And quite often they do the opposite. And just as often, they ask us for an exception to our request. I know I didn't do exactly what you asked, but please, 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 can I do it my way? And often our emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental side kicks in, and we allow them to disobey. By doing this, we teach them to ignore our requests in critical matters. Many people think of God as a similar parent. God tells us exactly what we must do to be saved, and many don't do it, but they think in the end God will be emotional, arbitrary, and sentimental, and will let them into heaven their own way. But John chapter 14, verse 6 says, not so fast. It says, Jesus said, I am the way to salvation. I am the truth through the word of God, and I am the resurrection life, eternal life. And no one comes to the Father but through believing in me. Your salvation is a critical matter, and the Lord is not emotional or arbitrary or sentimental about it. He is crystal clear. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, the Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is God the Father's will in the matter of your salvation? Well, let's start with what his will is not. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, It is not God's will for any of you unbelievers to perish in the lake of fire, but for all of you to come to repentance, which is a change of mind about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord doesn't damn you to hell. He honors your request to go to hell because you want nothing to do with him. You see. So everybody who is in the lake of fire is there because they chose to be because it is not God's will that they be there. God's will is simple. It's revealed in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. So if we ignore God's critical requests, there are consequences. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. Well, who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I, Paul, deliver to you as of primary importance the gospel message I also receive that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead and on the third day according to the scriptures. So if you want to get to heaven, it's probably just best to do what God asks you to do. Acts chapter 16 verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. When we believe... We simply take God's word for it in the matter of what it takes to be saved. And then we do it. And I recommend you do it now. Well, let's close with music. As believers in Christ, we are the born-again ones, according to the Lord. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, the spiritual birth, Moving from spiritual death to spiritual life, you cannot see the kingdom of God the Father in heaven. Well, here's June Murphy to encourage us to live a lifestyle, to walk in the light. I do so with pleasure. in the light as he is in the light you must be born again as believers in Christ we are children of God and in fellowship we are with him he has cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness the word says this is true his royal priest holy blameless in Christ yes we have been
stab myself. That's all. That was great. That was very, very jazzy. <laughs> Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Jesus and he will make your path straight. For the Lord is the one who goes ahead of us. He will be with us. He will not fail us and forsake us. So do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord longs to be gracious to you he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might promote you at the proper time, slamming all your cares on his back because he cares for you. Yes, God considers your problems to be his responsibility. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for being everything to us, for being the all-sufficient God, who in unconditional love and forgiveness and grace surrounds us with a sphere of per perfection so that we can grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the path. Thank you for the spirit who directs, our, uh, who directs us and guides us and mentors us to be perfect and to be in conformity with your Son. We just pray that you protect us as we go forward this week, 
that you provide for us in abundance, that you reveal your plan for us to our spiritual eyes, and that you give us the courage to do all the things that you've set up for us to do. And we ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening.